Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week and does a monthly Patreon-only episode for all $5 above patrons, but not here. Oh no, not here. I am your host, Jeff, better known as Brittany Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And we are here today to talk about Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 4, The Last of the Starks, which was an episode which essentially reset the board and prepared us for the endgame question we've all been waiting for resolution on. Will Bronn actually get High Garden? I'm on the edge of my seat, Jeff, as I know you are. It's it's interesting. I think a lot of people liked the Long Night Episode 3 better than we did. Yes. For a lot of good reasons. And I feel like I liked this episode somewhat more than a lot of people did because this episode has proven very divisive and a lot of people hated it. And I think that might just be because my expectations were so high going into the Battle of Winterfell. Yeah. Because episode two was so great and I was so pumped to see the showdown with the White Walkers. So maybe my expectations were a little too high. And for this one, I, I was going in expecting really nothing. So the fact that we got some decent material made me happier than I should probably be about it. Yeah, but it's it's funny. I think I, I didn't have high expectations for this episode. So I felt like that this episode exceeded kind of the ground floor expectations that I had. It did feel like a lot of the plot tension was significantly deflated by the fact that the long night occurred prior to this episode. But maybe that's what George has planned as well. But we'll, we'll get into that at some point down the road. The show can still work so well when it's just two or three actors working off each other. Right. Or it's just like dialogue-free atmosphere scenes like the opening of this episode can work really well. You got the great music and, and the you know great parallels between everyone saying goodbye to their, their victorious dead, to borrow a phrase from Lord of the mm-hmm. Rings. But when things have to actually happen in the plot, <laughs> that's when it starts going awry. And that's when you really feel the lack of structure from the books. I do feel like this episode had some moments that feel very bookish. Or things that Martin probably told David Benioff and Dan Weiss. Like we said in past episodes, David Benioff has said explicitly that he will not be saying which things specifically Martin will reveal, which things specifically came from Martin. So that's interesting. But I do feel like there's a tonal difference. I can almost sense it. I I mean, maybe maybe it's my arrogance kind of coming out here that I'm like, oh, yes, me. I can sense when it's George R. Martin and when it's David Benioff and Dan Weiss speaking here about the endgame. But I don't know. So as we transition to the episode itself, our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about all published books, that is the five novels, the three Dugnick novellas, histories, interviews, the Windsor sample chapters, and especially Game of Thrones TV show, anything and everything. So Emmett, I figured I would ask you this question to kind of break the ice and kind of a question that's kind of floating around that's gotten a lot of um, attention, shall we say, from folks in the fandom. Which is, why is there a behind-the-episodes segment after each Game of Thrones episode that seems specifically designed to hurt us, the fans? <laughs> yeah, I agree. This is one case where you employ death of the author, not out of intellectual rigor, but just to spare your soul <laughs> the sight of Benioff and Weiss. And look, I don't mean to you know, like call them hacks or insult them personally or do a lot of the casual shit-stirring that I think is unfortunate in social media about Agreed. these guys. Because they have done work I've really liked on and off of Game of Thrones. The, uh, the book and movie 25th Hour is one of my absolute That's favorites. Movie, yeah. Benioff wrote that. So, I, yeah, full props. But they just look tired at this point. Yeah. You know, they have families now. They have Star Wars money now. They don't really need this and it kind of shows. So, I, I don't think that they're like actively aggressive dude bros who hate the source material or some <laughs> such. But I do think they're not necessarily putting as much thought and effort into the plot mechanics as might be demanded. Yeah, I agree with that. And the reason why this is kind of our icebreaker for this week is because 
David Benioff in the in the inside the episode portion of this episode said, quote, Danny sort of forgot about the Iron Fleet as the reason why the Iron Fleet was able to sneak up and kill Rhaegal in this episode. And I just about like laid back in my couch and was like, dude, Daenerys, Daenerys actually said that we need to look be on lookout for the Iron Fleet. The Iron Fleet is going to secure King's Landing from the sea. Like, what are you fucking talking about? Like, you don't understand the material that you're even like relaying to us as as viewers. That, but the thing is like, Emmett, you're right though, is that I get it. Like these guys are exhausted. Like I said on Twitter today, it looks like they get about 30 minutes of sleep at night as they're going through this. It's a very, very rigorous uh, shooting schedule, writing schedule, post-production schedule that really doesn't lend itself well to the most cohesive, uh, cogent arguments and statements about the show. That's kind of my take on it. That's my kind of half-hearted defensive David Benioff and Dan Weiss. Although I agree, they're, they're not hacks. I mean, it, I would recommend David Benioff's book, City of Thieves, City of Thieves, right? About the siege of Leningrad back in World War II, which is a really, really excellent novel uh, that was written long before Benioff actually was part of the Game of Thrones universe and was talking with George and stuff like that. So these guys are not hacks. They are just uh, – they're very tired and they're moving on to different things. And it's very clear as we're going into the end of Game of Thrones that they are ready to just kind of get going. Their storytelling is being compared to books that don't actually exist yet. Right. Which is some kind of like twisted nightmare scenario for a creative mind to have to deal with. So I have much sympathy for them in that regard. But on the other hand – the the behind the episode scenes being a running joke is a thing that predates season eight. <laughs> this has come up before, like when they said Needle was a symbol of revenge for Arya in season five, when the books go out of their way to establish that Needle represents home and family and harmony to Arya, right. not revenge. Or when, you know, the fact that they said Renly would unquestionably be a better monarch than Stannis, which... <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's plenty of great reasons not to like Stannis, but to properly over Stannis is just a farce. Like you have to <laughs> deliberately misread the books to do that. And um, what, what did they say in season seven when it came to the stuff beyond the wall? Dan Weiss is, is talking and he's saying like, oh, for four seasons, we really wanted a zombie polar bear. So we really put our four feet down and said, God damn it, we want a zombie polar bear. And I'm just like, oh, okay. Okay. Why? Why? I don't understand. But why, though? <laughs> why? Like, when the bear shows up at the Fist of the First Men in the books, it's ironic because Gior Mormont's sigil is the bear. Right. So, that's interesting. But just having it be a bear just because? Like, again, that's fine, but it's like, that's how I expect, like, fans who are half paying attention to talk about the show. Like, right. I want a zombie polar bear now. That's not, it's it's jarring coming from the people creating the show. And part of it does seem deliberate after a certain point. Not like this is actually how they think, but like this is, again, not their main priority and they take a lot of shit for it and they're sick of right. it. And sometimes it does feel like they say things kind of to get under the skin of the most rabid, unreasonable <laughs> critics of the show, which is, again, something I can't entirely blame them for. But if that's the case, then they've done it a lot and that's kind of tiresome in and of itself. The end of the day, though, these are the guys that brought these books to the small screen so we can thank them and appreciate them for that alone. And again, they're the people that brought me to the books as well, being the person who watched Game of Thrones before – Game of Thrones seasons one and two before actually reading the books themselves. So I guess hats off to David Benioff and Dan Weiss themselves, but those inside the episode segments are oh, oh so oh so hurtful to my soul. They put in a ton of work and they've made stuff like this podcast being as, as popular as it's gotten possible. Yeah. And they, they they have created a lot of really incredible television along the way. But that does not make me want to watch them talk about it any more than I do. Mm, just can't wait till they do Knights of the Old Republic. That's going to be so much fun. 
Poor Star Wars. Poor Star Wars. That's, that's a whole conversation in itself. <laughs> it's deep. That is our thoughts about David Benioff and Dan Weiss. Now we have to transition into the synopsis for this episode. And again, this is Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 4, The Last of the Starks. It's Winter Solstice celebration here at the Christmas Village, and it's time for John and his friends to signal the start of the festivities with a lighting of the – ah, uh, yes. This is not a Thomas Kincaid painting. Come to life. My mistake. I'm always making these silly mistakes at the beginning when I'm doing these synopses. Apologies for that. Well, again, we start with another silent opening here. A lot of bodies, a lot of fires. John and the survivors of the Battle of Winterfell hold torches as pendants are placed on bodies, and people give silent, tearful goodbyes to their friends and comrades. John steps forward and gives a speech, honoring the memories of the fallen, stating that everyone at Westeros owes the slain a debt that they cannot repay. The funeral pyres are lit, and everyone watches the bodies burn. It's something. I'll, I'll give him that. Next, we're in the Winterfell Great Hall with a less-than-joyous feast in progress. Santa Clegane gets all noir anti-hero, sitting alone and shooing off most everyone who comes around him, except for Sansa, as we find out later on. But then Danny puts everyone into a joyous mood by naming Gendry as Lord Gendry Baratheon, Lord of Storm's End. Everyone cheers. Hooray for Gendry. The celebration picks up with drinking, drinking games, and John getting told how awesome he is to Danny's total utter chagrin. Danny leaves, very obviously upset. Brienne, Jamie, Tyrion, and Pod play a drinking game where you keep asking questions, and if the answer is true, the question gets to keep asking questions. Tyrion asks Brienne if she's a virgin, but she refuses to answer. She leaves the Great Hall instead. Jamie follows. Gendry goes off in search of his lost love, Bara, the tavern sex worker he encounters in a storm of swords at the Stony Sept, who is very likely his own half. Oh, wait, that's actually not right. It's Arya that he's after. He finds her shooting arrows. He tells her he's been named the Lord of Storm's End. He proposes marriage to make Arya the Lady of Storm's End. Arya says, no, she's not a lady. She leaves him heartbroken. We cut to Brienne's room where she's tending to her fire. <laughs> yeah, she is. A drunken Jamie stumbles in, demanding an answer to the question of whether Brienne is a virgin. He starts disrobing. Brienne helps him. Then Jamie tries to undress Brienne. Then Brienne is naked, Jamie is naked, and they proceed to quote-unquote wrestle, as Bran so artfully put it when he caught Jamie and Cersei in flagrant delecto back in the Game of Thrones brand 2. Meanwhile, John is in his room. Danny Anderson, they embrace, but Danny ain't here to play hide the Northern Bratwurst. Instead, she wants to make it perfectly clear that John is never to reveal his true identity to anyone and to tell Sam and Bran to shut the fuck up. Danny says he needs to tell Arya and Sansa. Danny wants it to all go back to the way it was before. Alas. We flash next to another war council where Daenerys insists that it's time to march on King's Landing and end Cersei's reign for good. But there are problems. With all the losses they've taken in the battle, they're at parity with the strength and size of the Golden Company and Euron's Iron Fleet, which not really sure about those numbers given that Danny and John look to have an army about the size of a Southern Baptist church in Brooklyn, New York. And the Golden Company has 20,000 soldiers as stated in episode two. But hey, fine, whatever. The new Prince of Dorne, wherever that is, is backing Daenerys too. And also, Yara has retaken the Iron Island, so she has them on her hand. Sansa counsels Danny to wait until the soldiers can heal and they can march, but nope, that ain't going to happen. John backs her up to Sansa's dismay. The basic plan is that John and Davos will march their army of Northmen down the King's Road to King's Landing, while Danny will sail the Unsullied to Dragonstone along with her two surviving dragons. They will besiege King's Landing from sea and land, but due to reasons that will become apparent later, they will not screen or scout forward of the naval forces sailing on Dragonstone. As the council clears out, Arya, Sansa, and Bran demand a word with John, and then we're at the Heart Tree, where Sansa and Arya tell John that they don't trust Danny, and then they proceed to call John their brother, and John makes that face, you know the one, like he thinks he's about to take a giant bite of apple pie, but it turns out it's actually ketchup under the crust. John makes them, that is Sansa and Arya, swear to secrecy in front of the Heart Tree. Sansa, yes, you, look at me, you're swearing an oath before a Heart Tree. John tells Bran to tell him the truth about us at Danny, and we cut away to the shrieks of an entire fandom. Then Bronn arrives and nothing of importance happens. Sansa proceeds to immediately break her word to John and to the old gods by telling Tyrion about John's Troy Jenny, which 
Oh, Sansa, did you have to go and do that? Meanwhile, Sandra Clegane is off to retrieve a bowl in King's Landing. Arya joins him in the ride. Tormund tells Jon that he's taking the Free Folk back beyond the wall. Jon sends ghosts with Tormund without an even half-hearted. Now, that's a good boy. Jon sees Sam, finds out Gilly's Pragers. They embrace, say bye, and it feels a bit final, doesn't it? <sighs> we flash to the sea as Grey Worm, Missandei, Tyrion, Varys enjoy a luxury cruise down to Dragonstone. Tyrion, for some inexplicable fucking reason, decides to reveal Jon's parentage to Varys. Varys starts doing the conspiracy thing. Daenerys flies with Drogon and an unridden Rhaegal above the fleet. And then Daenerys forgets about the Iron Fleet just as Euron <laughs> and the Iron Fleet come striding into clear view. They launch scorpions and kill Rhaegal. Rip. They try and kill da- Danny and Drogon. Danny makes away, but then the Iron Fleet goes ape shit on Danny's fleet, sinking most of it. The survivors watch up on Dragonstone. Saber one, Sunday. In King's Landing, Euron Crows. You get it, Emmett, right? Euron Crows. Oh, got it. About his victory against Danny to Cersei. Queen Cersei announces she's pregnant by um Euron. Yeah, by Euron. That's a ticket. Sure hope Euron doesn't learn how to count to nine anytime soon. Cersei orders all the citizens of King's Landing into the Red Keep as a means of preventing Danny from decarsing the, the castle and killing thousands of innocents. And then in a slow pan out, we find out that Masande has been taken prisoner by Euron. Oh no. Back on Dragonstone, Daenerys wants to nuke the piss out of King's Landing. Varys says he ain't about that. Varys and Tyrion conspire some more. Sounds like Varys is going to try something, something that will most likely be very stupid and result in his death because he's hashtag for the realm. We then cut briefly to Winterfell where Jamie learns about what happened to Dragonstone from Sansa and Brienne. That night, Jamie and Brienne are in the room together, but he gets dressed and mounts his horse. Brienne comes running after Jamie, telling him to stay, but Jamie says he can't. He's hateful, just like Cersei. We finish this episode of Game of Thrones with Daenerys and her entourage arriving outside of the walls of Karth to treat with the Thirteen. Okay, it's not actually Karth, but fucking seriously, the set looks exactly the same as Season 2's Karth. Anyways, Danny, Grey Worm, Tyrion, Varys, and Drogon are outside of Alleged King's Landing with Cersei, Kyburn, Gregor, Clegane, and a chain Masande on top of the walls. And then out comes the mouth of Sauron to treat with Daenerys. It's Kyburn himself. Tyrion goes out to speak with him, debating Cersei's unconditional surrender. Kyber returns the same demand. Tyrion decides to bypass Kyber and goes straight to Cersei. Archers take aim at Tyrion, but at the last minute, Cersei orders them off with a hand wave. Tyrion pleads with Cersei, stating with, with a sincerity that I cannot possibly believe he actually feels that Cersei isn't a monster and, to, and sh- that she should try and save the life of her unborn child. Cersei in return orders Gregor Clegane to behead Masande. Grey Worm recoils in shock and horror. Daenerys faces towards Cersei and shit is on for next week's hour and a half long blood hour where we assume that this time, this time, actual ma- major characters die, right? I guess, right? I mean, it's the God Emperor Cersei after all, and somehow I fucking know that her kill count will be higher than the Night King and the Short Knight. And that is Game of Thrones Season 4, Season 8, Episode 4, The Last of the Starks. Yeah, as I said earlier, this this episode just can be enjoyable on a micro level. I think certain scenes work pretty well. I know some people disagree with me on that count, but I enjoyed a lot of the character dynamics in this episode. The, the big picture of the plot looks shakier even than it did last week, and <laughs> You know, the, the, ju- the justification for removing the White Walkers off the field so cleanly and abruptly was that it was going to be refocusing on the Game of Thrones. What really matters is the human drama of, of the war amongst humanity, and that's not going to be solved just by getting rid of the big bad. Right. But if it looks like this, that's not effective because it's not particularly dramatic or engaging. That Euron's fleet comes out of nowhere and starts shooting giant crossbows at the dragons, or that Cersei's going to fool Euron into thinking the baby is hers. Like, the, the drama itself is not especially strong surrounding these characters in King's Landing. And people have been comparing it to the Scouring of the Shire. But as we've said before, King's Landing isn't the Shire. Winterfell is the closest thing to the Shire. Right. And it's already been scoured. And now it's presumably going to be fine for the rest of the series. So the, the fight over King's Landing doesn't quite work emotionally in that regard. So the the stakes are just 
not present in the way you'd want them to be at the end of a series this epic. I agree. I think it's hard to understand some of the some of the decisions that the show makes because I think you're right. At the micro level, a number of these scenes are very compelling. A number of the character moments are really, really good. The Brahmi material, Jamie leaving Brienne at the end of the episode, and the death of Masande. These are all work really well. These these scenes all work really well in a vacuum. But I find myself kind of feeling deflated by the end of the battle of Winterfell from last episode to the point where I don't didn't feel a whole lot of plot tension. Like when Rhaegal died, and I, I, we'll, we'll talk about that, we promise we'll talk about that. I, I just kind of went, oh, Rhaegal is dead. And you're like, wait a minute, that should be a hugely sem- seminal moment in Game of Thrones where a dragon has been killed by Euron fucking Greyjoy appearing out of nowhere yet again for this this episode. So I just find, I don't know, I'm with you. I find there's some things that are compelling about the episode, but the overall picture is not particularly compelling to me. And that makes me a little worried about what's going to shake out in the last two episodes of Game of Thrones. Not just Game of Thrones season eight, but Game of Thrones itself. I am worried about a lot of the plot resolutions here. There are certain things in the episode that make me hopeful about where some of the characters might be going, but even then it's going to be a a very bittersweet ending at best and maybe not in the way that's going to be entirely satisfying, but that's all speculation. And of course we'll have our (laughs) takes for episode episodes five and six as they come out. What did you think were the highlights of this episode, sir? So I really thought that John's funeral oration was quite moving and John actually had a chance to speak and to deliver lines. And I do know that that Kit Harrington as an actor has gotten his start got a start in the, in the play world so i got to see john as kind of a shakespearean type figure and as shakespearean type character here and i really found found john's speech moving the same way that i found pericles funeral oration from through from thucydides through kennedy's whatever you want to pronounce it a similar similar kind of vein going there so i, I really enjoyed that especially and it was a good episode opener for sure Yeah, I enjoyed that. I loved, as with episode two, we got that great montage format of seeing all the characters and their individual connections to the dead and how they're similar to each other. Sansa and Theon, Sam and Ed and uh, Danny and Jorah. I liked that the episode was kind of bookended with Danny's losses that way, the loss of Jorah and the loss of Missandei. That's clear to what's motivating Danny in this episode, and I think that's it's well structured in that regard. And and I really like the the idea when Sansa planted the Stark sigil on Theon's body, like that pendant there. It maybe choked back big ass man tears. To kind of like transition away though from the funeral itself, I think this is going to be pretty controversial because I've seen a lot of people. Not liking this, but I think the Sansa-Daenerys conflict is making a lot of sense thematically and with regard to them individually as characters. They both have pretty compelling points of view in my mind. I I don't think that Daenerys is 100% correct, and I also don't think that Sansa is 100% correct about whether they should march on King's Landing now. So I I appreciate that, I think, from – I appreciate that you have people that have points of view that you don't have the stupid point of view and the smart point of view. You have two – relatively similar points similar uh, similar similarly valued points of view in the in these two characters in Sansa and Daenerys yeah overall I agree with that and I like that Arya was allowed to be more reasonable than she often is on the show I like that she said to John, yeah we get it you made the right call in terms of teaming up with Danny when the White Walkers were at the door you they were doing that for our people and we understand why you did it but the thing is <laughs> the White Walkers are gone now which I think is the one interesting way this episode dealt with the end of the long night actually right is this presentation to John's okay so what's your case for staying loyal to Danny now we don't need her dragons right we don't need her her all-powerful loyal army of eunuchs so what is it about her as a leader what are her policies what is her mm-hmm. temperament that's keeping you on team Danny now 
And John is struggling with that, and Tyrion is struggling with that, and Varys is struggling with that, which I think is interesting. It is interesting, because I'm really enjoying Varys, especially because he is playing up this hashtag for the realm thing. And in his own heart, I think both in the books and the show, he believes that. Though in the books, him doing things for the realm means supporting young Griff. In the show, it seems to be morphing into him supporting Jon Snow. And is he right in that? In supporting Jon? Is Jon getting the better monarch than Daenerys here? Uh, I don't know. What do you think? I, I don't know if I entirely invest in the idea that John is, is leading Danny on in any regard or, you know, going to eventually take the throne away from her. But I mean, I think I think Varys is maybe trying to make that happen. And I, I don't know if a, I would like to see Varys acknowledge that he's, in fact, been a lot more willing to take on collateral damage than he's saying in this episode. But I agree with you that he's a much more interesting and depthful character right now than he has been in the past because he's not just Tyrion Light. He's actually his own character. Yeah. And as you say, I like how he expresses his ideology in the books for sure. So, And that takes us to a question from one of our patrons, Lady Rebecca Porfile, who asks, do you think Shovaris, who actually seems to believe for the realm, will put in safeguards to kill Danny before she goes full Mad Queen? I think she's done listening to her advisors and I doubt she listens to John, aka better claim to the throne, Gary. <laughs> I like that. I like that. What do you what do you think? Do you think that Varus is going to attempt to prevent Daenerys from blowing up King's Landing or do something terrible or horrible? I don't think he's gonna try to kill her, but I do think he's probably gonna try to do an end run and put John on the throne instead of her, and I don't think she's gonna react well to that. No. Which I think will be the version in the books of Danny turning on Varus and Delirio over their support for young Griff. I think that's kind of what we might be seeing a, a echo of play out with Danny and Varus in the show. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think that Varus is going to necessarily kill Daenerys, but I think he's going to get himself killed in the process of attempting to supplant Daenerys with Jon. And I think that's going to lead to a lot of conflict between Jon and Danny come the end game of Game of Thrones themselves. So what about you, man? What do you think were highlights for this episode? I thought Amelia Clark killed it. She hasn't always been one of my favorite performers on the show, and I think that's in large part because of the material and direction she was working with for a few seasons. But I thought she absolutely sold her alienation and desperation and just final devastating to surrender to her dark side at the end of the episode, indicating some very gnarly shit to come in episode five. I loved the simple trick at the victory feast of uh, blurring out the friendly dialogue and replacing with this atonal score as she looks around all sadly. That's just a great way of expressing her loneliness, and it wasn't overcomplicated. It didn't last too long. It made its point and got out, and that kind of simple, clear, concise character work is something that I think drew a lot of people into the show back in the first couple seasons, and is something that has stayed present throughout the show, but it's kind of gotten overwhelmed by some other elements that don't work quite as well. So I was glad to see that. I was glad to see that as well. And I did get a kind of Stannis vibe from Daenerys's performance or Daenerys' performance, from Amelia Clark's performance in this episode. I thought it was cool how she looked very alienated and very like put out by the fact that everyone's kind of acclaiming John when she can make the very plausible case that it was actually her who helped to end the long night. That was her unsullied who took the brunt of the casualties in the war for the dawn, if you want to call it that, the battle for the dawn, if you want to say that even better. And I could see Stannis being in a similar situation come, you know, after the Battle of Ice and the Battle of Winterfell, where all where he's defeated the Boltons and put out the red perpetrators of the Red Wedding. But he's you know, all the everyone acclaims Jon Snow is the kind of the guy that they want to back instead of him. So I did get some kind of Stannis vibes from Daenerys in this episode. Yes, indeed. I'm going to talk a little more, a little more about the Danny Stannis comparison later on in the episode. But yeah, Danny was definitely I thought, an anchoring highlight of the last of the Starks, ironically, because the title refers to pretty much everyone except her. Right. 
What about the flip side of the coin, sir? What did you think was a low light of this episode? Bron. I mean, the Bron subplot. It feels like D&D, who are the writers for this episode, knew that the Bron subplot was uniquely stupid, so they wrapped it up without one iota of tension. Ooh, was Bron going to kill Tyrion or Jaime in that scene? Was he actually going to crossbow one of them? No. No, he wasn't going to do that. Did anyone feel anything there at all? Anything? Anything? No. No, it was pretty blatant. Let's let's get this out of the way. Braun just basically walked out of the room saying, you'll see me again in the finale, folks. <laughs> Don't worry. It's going to be just fine. And it, yeah, it, it feels like padding out Jerome Flynn's presence for probably contractual reasons. I mean, who knows if that's the case, but that's really what it comes off at. As I've said before, this reminds me so much of the lock plot in season four. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Yep. Where the Boltons sent this mook to kill John and had no impact on anything. <laughs> like, he didn't succeed. He didn't even really get to try. John didn't know he was a mole at any point. The Boltons never tried again. This wasn't part of John's grievance against the Boltons. It meant nothing whatsoever <laughs> and involved a character that no one was, a show only character that no one was invested in. And Braun is practically a show only character at this point in yep. terms of how much more just screen time has been given than his equivalent in the books. So, yeah, that was, I think, something everyone agreed was just immediately tiresome and stood out like a sore thumb in a way that a lot of Braun scenes do. It's, it's such a, Weird contrast where Jerome Flynn is objectively one of the most talented performers on the show yep. and hugely charismatic and clearly having a blast, but I just can't stand most of the actual scenes he's in. And we did get a question from our poor fellow patron, Sir P. Dubium, who asks, why is Bron still on the show? Oh, we There's there's no really story reason why Bron is still on the show, but there's potentially contractual reasons, as Emmett pointed out, why Bron is still in Game of Thrones itself. So, yeah, I, it's just... Bron, that that plot was we 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 knew it was going to be dumb from episode one. There was no doubt in our our minds that it was going to be it was going to be a total letdown. There's going to be nothing coming out of it. And look, we were proved right. So basically, we can hang our hats on that, right? I did not think it was going to be this dumb. I'll admit, I did not think he was going to walk out of the room like that, <laughs> and it was going to be like you could just hear the air escaping from a balloon. I did not think it was going to be quite that bad. And it's and look. A lot of plot mechanics are dumb when you break them down and just talk about them glibly in, in isolation. But in you know the fun of watching the story is getting swept up in the drama and the craft of it in a way that makes you not notice that stuff. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if it's blatant and everyone notices it, even the people who are just kind of watching the show for fun and aren't thinking about it deeply, then you kind of screwed up and you should have covered up the plot mechanics with a little more, little more, little more skin and muscle mm-hmm. you know, on, that, on that scaffolding. And I don't think they did that there. I totally agree with that. So what did you think was a low light for this episode? Look, the long night ending so abruptly and cleanly was bad enough, but Rhaegel going out like an absolute punk (laughs) against a fleet that definitely should have been immediately visible, including from the dragon's back, is even worse. Mm -hmm. Like, this feels at this point like active hostility against the magical (laughs) elements having any lasting impact, which seemed like a kind of unfair accusation when it came to, like, Summer being killed off back in Season 6. And I felt like, well, they just don't, you know, they don't want to see Jedi the Direwolves and whatever, whatever. But now it seems like, like yeah, they act- actively don't like these elements and want them off the board as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. When I understand that most of the books are, in fact, all about the political and character stuff, but that's because the magical elements are largely being held in reserve yes. to go nuts in the final book, book and a half or so. And I wanted an equivalent to that in the show, and we're really not getting that. And it's it's not subverting it in a way that's interesting. It's subverting it in a way that makes the White Walkers and the dragons feel less special. And I just hate that. Yeah, I agree with that. So, so I have a question for you, actually. Uh, do you think that Euron killing Rhaegal is something that's going to occur in the books in, in some sort of way? Is that something that you see as, a, as the Euron guy? That was interesting. And it did play into my pet theory that... 
the Night King in the show is in part an amalgamation of Euron's biggest impact on the plot in the books, something to do with stealing a dragon and something to do with bringing down the wall, both of which I think Euron will be involved in in the books. Mm -hmm. And then you have him killing a dragon now, which makes me think, yeah, Euron in the books is in is some way involved in getting a dragon off the board, at least temporarily, whether that's killing it, whether that's bamboozling it or kidnapping <laughs> it or some such, and then Danny has to take it back. I don't know exactly how it'll play out, of course, but those those seem like strong signs that, that this is a book event being filtered through uh, what the show is doing with Euron. And pretty much no one likes what the show is doing with Euron, but that, that definitely stood out as interesting to me. I Interesting, I agree. And I do think... Uh, interesting, I agree. And I, I do think that the plot's points are going to be a bit different, especially given the fact of the Dragonbinder horn, which seems to – is going to do something. We don't know exactly what it's going to do, but I know that you and others have theorized that it will potentially have one of the dragons fly off to Euron back in Old Town, and that will have a significant impact on the Eldritch Apocalypse that's apparently going to be happening in Old Town coming in the early parts of the Winds Winter or the mid parts, whatever it's going to be in the Winds Winter. For sure. I think it's going to be a climactic event of the next book. There's all this stuff building up around Old Town and Euron's invasion of it at the end of A Feast for Crows and with the Forsaken, Euron's released Winds of Winter chapter. So I think that's going to be a major event in the books that just the show, for a variety of mostly good reasons, <laughs> didn't have space for. I'm not upset that they honestly didn't even try to execute that stuff. I don't think it would have worked that well. And I'm fine with them removing Sam from Old Town quickly, but I just wish they hadn't done Euron at all in that case. Yeah. Or, or tried, tried to make him somewhat more interesting than he is. Because it's not just that he's kind of annoying in scenes it's that him being like the main supporting character in Cersei's story now just makes Cersei's story so much less interesting and so much less of a threat like I'm I'm really supposed to find this guy a suitable replacement for the White Walkers in terms of <laughs> a threat in the show that's it's that's just preposterous I agree with that and that takes us to a few questions that people have asked because a lot of people had a lot of questions about uh this this killing of Rhaegal so our Lord Commander Timothy W a small council patron asks how did Euron's fleet sneak up on Daenerys' fleet again? Question mark. Um, but I this is just infuriating. And look, this is just more than a nitpick because it makes all of your characters idiots right. in a way that makes them much less interesting. Because it's not just that Danny forgets about the Iron Fleet and doesn't see this coming. There are other people in the room with her. Right. Why don't Tyrion and Varys have scouts? Right. Why don't they... Why don't... It's just... I mean, calling things lazy writing or unearned or unsatisfying has, is basically being treated like a slur these days yeah. by some people who are really into the show. So I'm sure I'll get flack for saying that. But like when I heard that and saw a brief clip of Rhaegal getting killed by Euron uh, prior to watching the episode, <laughs> I assumed it was going to be during an attack on King's Landing by Danny's forces. Sure. And this was a clever defensive ploy by Euron. But no, he was just waiting at Dragonstone. How long was he there? <laughs> How, how did Danny not realize that the Iron Fleet would someone would probably be there? It just it wouldn't matter as much again if this wasn't Endgame. If right. this wasn't these weren't climactic events. If this was season four or five of the show, it would just be worth an eye roll. And it's like, oh, well, that wasn't that great. Hope the next battle scene next season is better. Right. When we get one of those, but this is the end. Things need to be tighter than this, and that's again where you see, I think, some creative forces that are have one eye off the ball and are kind mm -hmm. of. Their heads, their head is somewhere else right now. Yeah, I see that as well. And you also have to think too, like, wouldn't Daenerys have people that she left in Dragonstone that could signal to Winterfell, like, "Hey, the coast is not clear. We've sighted one dude with a torch right. waving it frantically." 
is all you need. And to be fair, Stannis apparently left no one behind at Dragonstone sure. either because Danny just walked in in season seven. This is just the thing people do. Poor Dragonstone. <laughs> they just abandon it. But it, it, it's such contrivance to get to something you could have handled so much differently. And it, I feel like everyone was immediately deflated by that. Agreed. That one, of, one of the three heads of the dragon that would have been built up in mystery and lore and power for this entire show goes out so quickly, so bafflingly, inexplicably to a character no one takes seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. And that takes us to our next question, which comes from Sir Unrequited Meh, a poor fellow patron who asks, is it good or bad military strategy to fly your dragons casually around an island on which you've conducted no reconnaissance and to do so within range of any potential dragon bows that you have encountered in battle before? That's the thing. Danny should know this is coming. We had a whole battle about in season seven about this. It was fine then for him not to realize that the Lannisters have scorpions right. that Kyburn came up with for them. But this is the exact thing she should be watching for now. Remember how Jamie in A Feast for Crows sends out like scouts and outriders because he made that mistake at the Whispering yep. Wood and doesn't want to make that mistake again? How that was like an interesting sign of Jamie's character growth mm-hmm. and he wasn't just this reckless sword swinger and was trying to actually be an effective leader. Like, that's the kind of stuff that makes Jamie's Feast chapter so good. Some of my favorite stuff in the series. And it's it demonstrates why stuff like this isn't just, like, cinema sins dinging off right, the list. Right. It's, it's, it's important because it's informing how the characters are, are dealing with their world and, and growing as, as people. And, you know, military strategy is an important part of that for a lot of these characters, actually. Danny yeah. and Tyrion especially. This has been a significant part of their story, for better or worse. And it felt to me... Like in season six, when Tyrion just like has some bizarre policy about the slavers that backfires vaguely right. and nothing is learned, and Danny calls him smart and makes him the hand anyway. <laughs> it's just it's 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 so bizarre. I find it very bizarre as well, and and I do think that the major reason why you had Euron ambushing Daenerys was oh look at this surprise, look at this shock that's just coming out of nowhere, and you're like. Okay, yes, I get that like Daenerys could be ambushed and that makes sense, but maybe add a little fog in, maybe do something interesting, you know, with the scenery, maybe make it so that there's, I don't know, I, there, there's there's ways you could do this that's more interesting. I know a couple people on Twitter were talking about this and I chimed in saying something like, well, maybe Euron signals to Daenerys that he wants to parlay and Daenerys takes that as the opportunity to be like, well, I don't trust this guy, but I should meet with him because if we can get Euron and the Iron Fleet and the Iron Fleet cleared off of the coast of King's Landing, then we have the opportunity to really set a siege without any fear of being kind of taken from uh, taken unawares from uh, from the sea. So I thought that might be a way to do it. You could use that as a way to make Danny seem not only sympathetic because she's trying to make peace, but it's also not the stupidest thing because Euron's clearly a very mercenary dude. Right. So he could convincingly say, I, you know what, I'm sick of Cersei. Let's make a peace. Just let me leave. Right. I'll take the Iron Fleet and just go back to the Iron Islands or, or, you know, sail off into the Sunset Sea. It's plausible that Danny could find that convincing. And then you have the reversal. That would be a surprise with actual weight to it because it's based on her decisions. Right. Instead of just her, like with Viserion, that was based on her decisions. She lost that dragon to the others because she showed up to save the day. That was, I thought, one of the better ideas in season seven. This, the, the, a great reversal where her doing the right thing inadvertently led to a, a huger danger. Agreed. That's smart. Agreed. This, this, this doesn't mean anything. So I think there's just, like, we, you wasted a dragon on a plot point that's unworthy of a dragon, basically. Very much agreed. And that brings us to our final question about uh, this, about the death of Rhaegal, which comes from Sir, my lady, Hunding, who asks, is Rhaegal now the biggest and longest established redshirt in the entire history of, fi- <laughs> of fiction? <laughs> that poor dragon, especially after John getting to ride it. 
And like he sends away Ghost and immediately his new pet gets killed. Right. There is, a, there is a, brut- a perverse brutality to that that I kind of liked, actually, I have to admit. Like imagine Ghost hearing about that and going, <laughs> he's going to have to take me back now. now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's like, I, I get the impulse to show, hey, the big fantasy, high fantasy magical things don't actually rule this world. Like, you know, there's important political stuff going on too. But, you know, the dragons are supposed to be menacing. That's supposed to be the point that they're, you know, flying nuclear bombs and uh, with like a, a sword of fire and death and devastation mm-hmm. hanging above the world. Is there a zone deck? So, so something like that in a dance with dragons. Obviously, they can be used for, for good or ill, depending on who's riding them. But to have them just taken out like that after so little impact. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't feel like a clever subversion. That just feels like getting rid of a character, not really a character, but a, a magical element that you, you don't know what to do with. Right. And it's just, it's not very impactful. Like I watched it and I, and I didn't watch the leaks beforehand, but I, I watched it as it happened and I was like, oh, well, I guess we're on to the next thing then where it's supposed to be like this exactly. huge, massive thing that a fucking dragon got taken. I was killed. And also, you know, killed in such a way that you're like, wait a minute – Based on the established lore of A Song of Ice and Fire and of Game of Thrones, there it, it's not quite possible to kill a well, – I mean, I, I get it. From season seven, Spoils of War, you have the dragon, the, the scorpion that can kill dragons. But – You have Meraxes being killed by, what, a scorpion uh, in Dorne? Through the eye. During, through the eye, exactly, during Egan's Conquest. And also the point of that is that the Dornish are hard motherfuckers right. who are better at this than everyone else and will keep it going long after you think they're done. And that's the kind of thing that can take down the dragons. Not random drunk pirate who can't <laughs> count to nine months. <laughs> He's not interested. Like when, like when, um, uh, when Rainus goes to Dorne and she gets told, "This is Dorne. You are not welcome here. Come back at your own peril." And then she comes back and gets shot down and killed for it. Like that's an arc. Yes, this is not an arc. No, it's not. It's really, really not an arc. Oh man, this. <laughs> did, we we did we're like being, some things, but we're this being episode. very negative on this episode. There are things I enjoyed. I swear. Yeah, I swear. Yeah, and I think that takes us to some. Just not the plot. Yeah, just not the plot. Some of the story elements, though. Some of the character elements specifically. And that kind of takes us to our episode anchor points for this episode. And we decide we generally decide on one or two that we think are most important or most impactful in the fandom. So the ones we chose for this week are the Bramey portion of the episode and Jamie then returning to Cersei in some capacity. We don't, we're not entirely sure which capacity yet. As well as the coming John and Daenerys conflict, which is being really, really set up and has had a lot of groundwork being developed for it. So I figured I would kind of toss it over to you first to talk a little bit about this Bramie and Jamie returning to Cersei aspect because that has proved to be very, 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 very controversial in some quarters in the fandom. For sure. I know a lot of people who ship Bramie are, are not happy with this and all, and I get why if that's the, the end game you look at these characters through. This does not exactly point positively in that direction. Fair. I was mostly fine with this while I was watching mm-hmm. it. I mean, I... That's not exactly how I feel about Jamie, and it makes sense to me that Jamie would freak out after a taste of real happiness and the independence and responsibility that goes with it after a lifetime of letting Tywin, Tyrion, and especially Cersei do the thinking for yes. him. That doesn't feel entirely like a regression to me, but just like a natural, like, him sitting at the edge of the bed clearly thinking, true love at last, fuck, I don't deserve this. Like, that actually that actually rings true to me in some ways, to, to Jamie in the books as well, and... It it also makes sense to me that J and B would have but the one night of honest passion before he leaves to confront Cersei because that's kind of how I've always felt it's going to go down <laughs> in the books. I think it I think it's going to happen in the Riverlands after fleeing Lady Stoneheart rather than at Winterfell after defeating the White Walkers. I think that you know, that's that's going to be where Jaime goes off to King's Landing to 
to deal with Cersei and Bran maybe goes off to keep looking for the Stark girls. Yeah. And look, I don't mean to be dismissive of the folks who want them to end up at Tarth with little blonde babies, <laughs> but I just don't think Jamie and Brienne are the breeding pair for a better tomorrow. As we see in this episode, that's Sam and Gilly. That, that's what they're here for. They're going to wander off into the sunset with a pack of adorable Muppets. Yeah, I'm with you there. I, I feel very similarly as, as you know, it's going to be very controversial that I'm agreeing with you because that's never happens in this show. Never, <laughs> never once, once. Never once. But I, I, I agree. And I, and I, when I said start this episode, I talked about things that felt George versus things that felt David Benioff and Dan Weiss. And I felt very strongly that the Bramie stuff is George. And the Jamie leaving Brienne at the end of the episode is also very George as well. And that Jamie is not necessarily on the redemption path, as some people have said. What George has said specifically about Jamie is that he wants to explore the limits of redemption in the character of Jamie Lannister. And I think the limit for Jamie Lannister is in his relationship to Cersei and the fact that he's found love one time, but that's the only time that he can actually experience that before he has to return to the one woman that he's had essentially an addiction to his entire life that has treated him terribly. He's not exactly treated her the best either, necessarily a little bit better than than, than Cersei's treated him, of course, but it does feel like, you know... The guy who swears off heroin and he's good for like a day, but then the day after that, he returns back to that itself. It's a toxic relationship, but you can't just get the talons of a toxic relationship out of you that quickly. And it makes total sense to me that Jamie's trigger would not be leaving Cersei in the first place, that he would be able to do that, but specifically finding a better relationship and seeing what that would be like. It makes complete sense to me that that would shake him a little bit and make him think, oh, wow. Like, his relationship with Cersei must stand out in such contrast to him now. Right. And now he really has to make the choice one way or another. And, yeah, well, obviously, we'll, we'll see what happens when he goes back. And that kind of takes us to a question from one of our poor fellow patrons, Sir Jason I, who asks, Assuming you haven't been spoiled, which I, I haven't, I don't know about you, Emmett, what do you confidently predict will be the final defining actions of the main character, of the major characters? Does Jamie kill Cersei? Does Arya not kill Cersei? What characters do you have no confidence predicting? I personally have the least confidence predicting Tyrion based on the first four episodes. So I figure we'll probably limit this question specifically to will Jaime kill Cersei in the next episode or will Arya be the one who will kill Cersei in the next episode? God, I hope it's Jaime. I mean, the implication <laughs> that he's genuinely going back to Cersei for good, which is kind of what the showrunner suggested. I didn't care for that at all. They might be set up for a reversal. I mean, Arya is also headed to King's Landing at the end of this episode. And very clearly, one of these two is the Red Herring right. for killing Cersei. And one of them is actually going to do it. I hope Arya is the fake out, not only because she's already killed a major villain in this season, but also because it's almost certainly going to be Jaime in the books. Yep. And for good reason, because that makes the most sense. Right. It makes complete sense that Cersei would assume it was Tyrion and never have a challenge to that worldview because she never thinks Jaime will do anything independent of her. And then to realize at the last minute, oh my God, I was wrong the entire time. That's that's that fits her just character mwah, just perfectly. Mm -hmm. So I, I hope we get a version of that in the books because even putting Jamie aside for a second, there is no better ending for Cersei's story than that. I completely agree. And I do feel that there's this kind of sentiment in some elements of the fandom where it's just too obvious. R plus L equals J is too obvious. Jamie is the Valonqar is too obvious. But it's only too obvious because you motherfuckers have been in this fandom for now. Some of you all have been in for 20 plus years. And some of us have also been in the kind of groundswell of fandom that is kind of 
combed these books and found all the context clues for us to make these determinations that our plus L equals J is true, and that Jamie is the Valonqar that is coming for Cersei instead of Tyrion. Whereas there's nothing explicit in the books that says that Tyrion can't be the Valonqar. He is the younger brother, after all. Arya, for that matter, too. She's the Valonqar, and of course, with the... This kind of gets really nerdy, but the the kind of Valyrian wording can be – the genders can be swapped. So she's younger than her older brother, Rob Stark, and older than – and she's younger than Sansa as well. So it could be Arya as well, but God, I really, really hope it's Jamie in the show. I I know it's – I'm fairly confident. I'm actually with you. I'm almost entirely confident it's going to be Jamie in the books as well. It's not supposed to be a mystery. The point is that Cersei doesn't realize it. We're supposed to realize it though and realize what that says about Cersei. And yeah, people are saying it's too obvious. No, it's not too obvious. It's set up. That's what you mean by too obvious. You mean there's groundwork for it. And it's not going to come completely out of nowhere, which is what makes it good. The problem is that the books have taken decades to come out. And we've all gotten really good at this stuff. And we've all gotten together on the internet to be really good at this stuff together, which Martin did not see coming when he started writing this stuff in 1991. So... That's a problem or a problem. That's just a reality of the culture we now live in, but it doesn't change how the books themselves work. Exactly. Like one thing Martin has been very clear on is I'm not going to change stuff just because you figured it out. I'm not going to go back and rewrite those things. And I think and really hope he's going to stick to that. My, uh, my kind of like assumption is that Jamie will be the one to kill her. Then does the mountain then kill Jamie? I guess that would make sense. I mean, that was kind of set up in season seven where the mountain stood in front of Jamie and for a half second you thought that Gregory Cleang was going to kill Jamie that for a half second. Maybe that's the foreshadowing groundwork there. I kind of hope Jamie makes it out alive if only to return to Brienne, but that seems kind of a distant possibility. Maybe the small hope could be found in the fact that Jamie might be saved from Gregor when Sandor arrives. Maybe it's the fake out. Maybe Arya is the fake out, but is Gamebo going to be a real thing? I know. I hate myself more than you right now. I, I, you know, I'm all for Sandor taking down his abuser, but in both book and show, I have the problem that that's just not Gregor anymore. That's a zombie who may or may not remember what he did to Sandor. Right. Like that, I don't, I can't really find much catharsis there when he's, he's so far gone as a being, like he's beyond even Beric Dondarrion forgetting about his castle and his betrothed. Like he's not a, he's not a human. He's just a, a mass of flesh given like a weird Frankensteinian spark by Kyburn. Like maybe Standor can find some catharsis in that, but I'm, I'm going to find it difficult, not nearly as much as he, if he was fighting Gregor itself, which did happen in the books and show uh-huh. when he fought Gregor at the hand's tourney. And Martin pointedly included the line that Sandor was refusing to take cuts at Gregor's unprotected face, which is not the same thing as forgiving Gregor or that Gregor's redeemed or that it should be <laughs> let go, but that pursuing a life of violence has made Sandor miserable and a worse human being. And it's, it's not brought him catharsis and it won't bring him catharsis in the same way that watching Joffrey die didn't actually make Sansa happy. No. It was just a nightmare to witness. It's, it's the same story here. So I don't want to trip into the territory of saying you shouldn't actually want to strike back at your abusers because of course that's a completely valid desire that, that everyone I think who deals with abuse feels at some level, but I'm not going to find Clegane Bowl emotionally cathartic, I don't think. And I really hope that Sander doesn't find it emotionally cathartic either, have some sort of quip about how awesome this feels. And I, and, I, and I do think that that kind of the way that Sander is being set up in this season as being kind of this nihilistic, like, stay the fuck away from me character is interesting. And I wonder if, if he actually is the one who kills Gregor Cogain in the next episode or the episode after that, whatever is going to happen, that it ends up kind of breaking him down. And he becomes kind of the same character that we saw at the end of his confrontation with Barak Nadarian, where he's crying and weeping and in the corner. And Arya realizes that he's a human being after all. I think that's that'd be an interesting kind of take on Kilgamebo. 
Agreed. I, you know, I think bringing those those human qualities out of Sandor is always great. I would love it if he fights the mountain specifically to save someone, like save Arya's yeah. life. I think that would that would I think make it work better for me. And I agree. I love the. There were some funny bits in this episode. I did like one with him and Tormund, where Tormund's crying about Brienne, and he's going on about, it, and the camera slowly zooms out <laughs> to reveal he's talking to Sandor, who's just staring at us like, "Please, please get me away from this man." Or like another really funny bit I loved is when Tyrion and Kyburn are staring each other down. Kyburn has the blatant mouth of Sauron standing right. out, outside the gates of King's Landing, and Tyrion says, "Danny demands Cersei's unconditional surrender." And Kyburn just pauses a beat and goes, "Well, Cersei demands Danny's <laughs> unconditional surrender." Like Tyrion, yeah, we know why we're here. Don't pretend this is a negotiation. This is just a stare down, which is something I've always liked about Kyburn that he's the most content person yeah. on the show, and he knows exactly who he is and what he wants, and he's doing it. And when everyone else challenges him, he's like, "What?" I'm just, I'm just, I'm just doing what I do. What's your problem? Sounds like a you problem. Kyber and out. So those little details were nice. I agree with that. And so we did get a question from uh, Lady Tarth Girl, who I'm assuming is a fan of Brienne of Tarth, one of our poor fellow who asked, why is everyone so pissed about Jamie, about the Jamie plot? I am happy that they got together, but was shocked that he ever stayed with Brienne to begin with. He ruined his reputation to save King's Landing once. He probably sees increased likelihood that someone is going to torch it and wants to do what he can again. Seriously, were people expecting him to sit out while all that shit went down? And I agree with that. I think Jamie's end game in both books and show is to prevent another Eras the Second type situation where half a million people are going to end up being blown up. Will he actually succeed this time as he succeeded back at the end of Robert's Rebellion? I don't know. I don't know about that one, man. I agree. And you know what? Watching that reminded me so much of this little moment in the movie Heat where Robert De Niro, the the career criminal, is about to leave his life of crime with his best girl and go off to the Caribbean and have the happy life that he's always wanted. And he's driving away. But there's this one one nemesis he hasn't killed and he's he's left him alive despite that guy doing some terrible things to him. And the camera watches him as he thinks about it and he just grins to himself at one point and just turns the car around because he knows he can't (laughs) leave it. And he knows at some level it's going to get him killed and it's the wrong decision, but he just can't not do it. Agreed. And that's kind of the vibe I got from Jamie here, that he he doesn't necessarily want to do this. And he says a lot of horrible stuff about himself to Brienne that I don't actually think he believes yeah. just to get her to let him go. In the same way that I, he doesn't really believe the threat he's making to Edmure in A Feast for Crows. He's just – in both cases, I think he's trying to use his negative reputation as a way to shield himself and as a way to get done what he wants to get done more than he is honestly expressing it. That's the interpretation I took away from it. It might not actually be what's intended, but I agree here. I think we're seeing uh, the you know the human heart in conflict with itself. That sure. Jamie has this chance for real happiness with Brienne, but both his relationship to Cersei and his duty to the people as he sees it are calling him away. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I think when you look at Jamie as a character, he's the guy who refused to actually state why he saved King's Landing in the first place. And he took on the moniker of the Kingslayer, this kind of terrible reputation. And that works really well with the things that he said to Brienne at the end of this episode, because he is the guy who's willing to take on the terrible fucking reputation in order to do the greater good at, at some level, not not as a total character moment, but as at some level, he is willing to be the guy who's going to be the person who will kill his sister and he'll always be known as not just the king slayer but now the sister slayer as well or something like that I, i'm not sure if that's going for that no there's another parallel with stannis right there you know heavy lies the head and i'll do the terrible thing and take the terrible reputation if that means i've done my duty right i think there's there, there's definitely a link so uh, thank you so much lady tarth girl for the question we'll see how that unfolds over the next couple episodes as we were saying and yeah, so the other big anchoring point for the episode, as you said, is the the building John versus Danny conflict. And uh, for the most part, I like this just fine, especially on the Danny side, 
Uh, I love how Danny was once the object of envy for Viserys as, as Harry Lloyd, as Viserys in that great speech in season one. I've been waiting for my whole life for people to look at me the way they're yeah. looking at her. And they've never done it. And now that's how she feels. Now she feels cold and on the outside. People are looking at John and Arya the way that she wants them to look at her. And she's lost the people who look at her that way, like Jorah and Missandei and most of the Unsullied. Mm-hmm. They're gone. And as you say, I, I also got major Stannis vibes off her this episode. I don't know how intentional that was, <laughs> as I don't think the show ever got a handle on the middle Baratheon. No. It would be great if they only did after he died. <laughs> right. They're using him as an, a subtextual cautionary tale properly now, seasons after he's gone. That's kind of hysterical. But... Like, her alienation from the crowd, her, like, the way she makes Gendry a lord feel very Stannis-like, where she still kind of is petty about, like, your dad was Robert Baratheon, in the same way that Stannis kind of always reminds Davos that he's a smuggler when he doesn't really have to. <laughs> but at the same time, Danny raises him up in the same way Stannis raises Davos up. So, I liked that. Um, Danny's envy of the more beloved popular leaders felt a lot like Stannis Ooh, yeah. vis-a-vis Robert and Renly. And then that final shot of her deceiving, teeth-gritting determination to serve her destiny at any cost, the way she puts it. Oh, that felt so much like Stannis to me. So as someone who finds Stannis the fascinating character, as you may have picked up on, <laughs> uh, I, I thought that stuff was great and, and definitely fed into her conflict with Jon in terms of him, him as another candidate for the throne. And as with Jaime and Brienne, a source of happiness that she's kind of giving up. The Jon side is a little less interesting in large part because they're playing the whole he's a reluctant leader, so he should be the king thing so straight. Uh, our friend Eliana, a.k.a. Arithmetric from Girls Gone Canon over on Twitter, was, was pointing out that really there's only a certain kind of leader that gets to be the reluctant hero, that gets everything handed to them and gets to, to refuse it all. But someone who is denied that and tries to get it is seen as like grasping or unworthy mm-hmm. in spite of always being kept on the outside. And just that, you know, that's that's we should kind of examine what we're saying when we hold up those kind of characters uncritically. And also uh, our friend Stephen Atwell summed it up perfectly by noting, hey, Robert didn't necessarily want to be king. Did that make him a good no. one? Like, how, how far are we taking this reluctant leadership thing? Like, we admire Eamon for giving up the crown, but we don't want him to be in charge, right? We don't want him to go back and take the crown now, necessarily. I love Eamon, but I wouldn't necessarily put him in charge. Like, he's a nice librarian. Right. I don't want him to rule the Seven Kingdoms. I don't think he necessarily has the skill set for that. But I do think John, as a whole, sold his conflicted loyalties. He sold someone who was caught among a bunch of bad options and is not sure, necessarily sure what to do. Um, especially since you have his, his awesome Hail the Victorious Dead monologue at the beginning of the episode, which I agree felt very theatrical and Kit sold because my main problem with Kit Harrington's acting of the show is is the monotone, like that his his pitch doesn't vary a lot of the time. <laughs> and in that speech, he was like, he was belting it out to the back row at certain points. Yeah. I was like, all right, I can hear you. This is great. Yeah. Uh, so I, I enjoy that aspect on the whole. I think the main problem for me might be just that the relationship itself doesn't still doesn't feel... Like, it has a lot of chemistry to no. me, especially compared to John and Egret, yeah. which really did in part because the actors were in love. <laughs> That's just how it goes. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I, I did think it was interesting that at long last, Varys and Tyrion were finally the ones who were like, hey, why don't they just get married? Because you're like – "I." the fandom has been like, dude, there's been a solution that's been there all along. And of course, in – proper Game of Thrones fashion, they bring up the solution that would work. And of course, they immediately dismiss it out of hand, like, oh, John can't control Daenerys and Daenerys, you know, John's too pliable. And he's, you know, you're like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. So I, I'm a little less in love with the conflict than than you are. And, and the main reason why is that I don't have a clear 
idea of their vision of governance, you know, that kind of what's Aragorn's tax policy that George said way back in the day, it has become this kind of stupid meme of like George being, oh, George is just focusing on like the stupid questions. But it's not a stupid question because the question George is really asking is why should we follow this fucking guy? Why should we follow John or Daenerys? Because they're so noble and heroic and they have great backstories. What happens after the backstory is over? How does the world get changed for the better? What policies are they going to integrate in Westeros that will make it a better society and culture? Do they break the feudal structure? Do they do some sort of land reform? Now, I do remember Daenerys's break the wheel speech from season five. And I do recall John being the kind of noble guy who wanted to bring all the wildlings south of the wall to safeguard them from the White Walkers, also from season five. But I guess for me, like I want to invest myself in their conflict. And to do that, I need to know what they stand for currently. Is break the wheel still something that Daenerys wants? Is it something that she's not saying explicitly because she doesn't want to alienate her potential supporters and her kind of noble supporters, the houses from the Vale and the North and things like that? I don't know. And because I don't know, I'm not invested in what Daenerys actually believes, whether that's still her policy or whatnot. Because right now, to me, it just feels like it's two pretty people who ride dragons, or in the case of John, used to ride dragons, who have heroic backstories. But I'm going to need at least kind of a five-bullet plan to Jaehaerys the realm on up, I guess is what I'm ultimately saying. I really worry that George R. R. Martin does not have an answer to that tax policy question. Yeah. I, I kind of feel that might have been like an aspiration that he started things off with, and then he's realized that like a realistic granular view of government isn't necessarily a climax right. to an epic fantasy story in the way he might have thought he could pull it off. So I feel like it's going to be suggested in the books heavily, and we're going to be given a couple of examples of good policies, like settling the wildlings on the gift, for example. Because, you know, that was pointedly called a dream for spring when it was brought up in A Storm of Swords, which seems like a big glaring neon sign from the author going, hey, I'm going to do this at the end. This is probably what, like, the last John or last Bran chapter is going to be sure. about to some extent. And that's going to be, like, you know, a microcosm of the better policies we see coming. I don't think we're getting the Jaehaerys five-point plan. I think that's what stuff like Fire and Blood is for. And Martin might just try to have that inform what we think Jon Snow is going to do. I said before that, I said before that Jaehaerys' line from Fire and Blood when he walks into his council room and says, we have work to do, that that might be where Jon's story ends. And then we're supposed to just kind of imagine, which is not hugely satisfying, but I think might be Martin's way around the difficulty of answering that question. Because like you said, we've, we've heard great lines from both John and Danny, some good concrete policies, but neither of them have really articulated a vision beyond feudalism or a vision resembling the transitions that happen in the real world, you know, roughly analogous to these era. I've always been interested whether Bravos will serve as some kind of model in the books because it seems to be in the Renaissance. So it, se it seems to be a century or two ahead of things. So maybe that's going to be involved, especially since Danny has connections to that city and Arya is going to have been there. But that's clearly not an element in the book. So I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about it either. And I, I'm with you in that I have the same concern about how the end of A Song of Ice and Fire is going to feel. And, and I get it. I get it that you don't want to have the final John chapter be a proclamation from the throne where he's saying, well, now that we've, we've kicked, you know, the Lancers out of, out of power, the White Walkers are gone. You know, Westeros is united at peace once again. Now we're going to break the feudal structure and here's the following land reforms that we're going to put, put, 
put forward. The tax policy is going to be as follows. We're going to structure the tax policy a little bit different. Here's why we're going to do our trading policy. And I get it. I, I know I, I like policy like in terms of my own politics a little bit more. I'm not as much about the ideas as more. I, I mean, the ideas are fine. But I mean, I'm more about like the policies themselves and what they actually do and how pragmatically effective they are. And that's kind of the person that, that, that I want to see. John and Daenerys, whoever is going to end up being the surviving Targaryen, if either of them survive, which I don't know for sure. Because I have, again, I haven't read the leaks. Uh, is And please do not come into storming into our, our mentions telling us all the leaks and all the end game stuff because that would be very rude and bad and you would get blocked um yes <laughs> i mean this is why no one likes phantom menace except me because it's about like trade policy right. and like the the war that brings down the republic and turns into an empire starts with a trade dispute which i think is actually kind of interesting that that banal policy could lead to a, a escalation of, of conflict and disaster i think that's actually kind of true to life but it's not necessarily hugely dramatic it's it's difficult to make it so, and so I think again we'll see we'll see a couple of of specific policies, but isn't it telling that we don't actually know what Egg's policies were for the most part? Mm-hmm. That Martin just kind of hints at him having these pro small folk reforms, but isn't really specific about what he did mm-hmm. that Tywin rolled back. Mm-hmm. We just kind of have to suppose because maybe that's not actually what's hugely interesting about Egg. So I think Martin is in this conflict, and that's why you have stuff like fire and blood coming up before the winds of winter because he's like, are you telling? A high fantasy epic or is certain elements of this more akin to historical fiction? And I think that might be something Martin is struggling with in terms of wrapping up the series. Agreed there. Agreed there. But to kind of put all those politics aside, we did get an excellent question from Lady Randy, a poor fellow who asks, how do you think this version of Dark Danny tracks with what's to come in the books? Her character arc is certainly set up to be morally murky, but I'm not really buying how antagonistic and undiplomatic she's become in the show. It seems to run against everything she's gone through thus far. Hmm. To answer this question, you have to go back to A Dance with Dragons. And what happens in A Dance with Dragons is that Daenerys Targaryen tries to set up a city-state that is run less badly than previous iterations have run it, I guess. Namely, by abolishing slavery in Marine and attempting to abolish it throughout Slaver's Bay. Does that work out? No, not 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 quite. Not exactly. She makes a number of compromises, which we will be debating about come 2024, 2025, whether they were good compromises or not. But at the same time, we do see Danny trying to do all these things to make Marine into this place that can exist outside of slavery. But she's kind of coming up against the hard reality that the people, namely the noble class in Marine, do not want to do any sort of reform – don't want to do any sort of reforms for uh, Marine itself. At the very end of her arc in A Dance with Dragons, she goes out to the Dothraki Sea atop Drogon, where she forcefully abandons uh, abandons Marine and embraces fire and blood. So I actually see a darker version of Daenerys tracking with what's to come in the books, especially in The Winds of Winter. I think that we're going to have a lot of Dracara's type moments in The Winds of Winter in places like Volantis and Pentos against the Dothraki themselves, those who are resisting her. We do know that Mago and Jaco will be major antagonists to Daenerys for at least a time in The Winds of Winter. That's something that Martin said back in 2011. At least he said about Mago. I'm not, I can't remember specifically about Jaco. But I think we're actually seeing kind of a realistic portrayal of who Danny is going to be in the books in season eight of the show. What about, what about you? I, I agree. I think the context is going to be somewhat different. I think part of the problem is Tyrion because Tyrion is also in a really dark place in the books. And I think that's going to have a huge impact on his relationship with Danny and how he advises her in the books. And that's just not the case in the show. So Danny 
Danny's turn does not come off quite as, as elegant or, or well-founded as I think it's going to in the books. But yeah, I mean, the closest we have come in the book series so far to Martin answering the Aragorn tax policy question, is Danny in dance? Is Danny putting forward those policies? And I think the conclusion Martin reaches, and this is part of why Dance is my favorite book in the series, is that being a, a messianic hero of destiny is incompatible with granular hmm. tax policy. You can't actually do both That's of these things. You have to. You have to pick. And Danny realizes at some level, oh, this is this doesn't feel like it didn't house the undying anymore. This doesn't feel like all these stories are coming together in ecstatic, trippy orbit around me. This feels like I have to keep showing up to council meetings with people who hate me for the rest of my right. life. I I don't like this at all. And she even says that. I, she says, I hate this and I hate this city, even though I have I'm forced to rule it, you know. Yeah, how am I like drinking and hanging out with men I I want to kill for their crimes against humanity? Like that's what that's what Danny's dealing with. And at the end of the book, as you say, she says, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. I, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm just going to try to cut the Gordian knot with fire and blood because I just I just can't deal with this anymore. And I think she does it for relatable reasons. And the people she's dealing with are genuinely horrible and dealing with her in bad faith, uh, which is almost blatant. Like when Hisdar offers marriage to Danny and she says, oh, go make the sons of the harpy stop assassinating people in the night. And he does it, <laughs> which is as much as a confession as it can be to, that, to say that Hisdar is in league with the sons of the right. harpy. Because how else would he accomplish that? So that's not a mystery. The, the drama comes from what Danny does in response and how she deals with it. And the, I think at the end of the book, you see where she's going. But I think in the show, again, you're going to have a lot of supporting elements that like lead her down that path. Tyrion is one. The Red Priests of Atlantis have taken a huge interest in her. I think they're going to feed this fervor. The Dothraki and their own messianic narrative about the stallion is going, is going to feed Danny in this regard. By the time she shows up to Westeros, I think all the raw material is going to be in there. Mm -hmm. I think all the raw material is going to be there for the quote unquote dark Danny turn we're going to see. Yeah. And this doesn't mean that Daenerys is the Mad Queen, as some people have said, that they've conflated darker Daenerys with, mad, with the Mad Queen theory. I don't get any sense that Daenerys is some sort of Mad Queen in both. I mean, you can make something of an argument in the books, but I don't see this in season eight itself. Uh, especially given all the shit that's being thrown her way. Uh, she makes very rational responses of anger and frustration and sadness based on all of these people that she's close to dying and losing another dragon, which of course we could talk, we've already addressed kind of how it was very um, underwhelming. But at the same time, like I don't see like this, like, oh, she's, she's turning into Eris, the second Targaryen reborn as some people have seemingly seen in Daenerys in season eight. That's Cersei. Right. Like, they, they've made that point pretty clear with the wildfire guys. And with, you know, Kyburn standing in for Varus's position during Eris's days. Like, Cersei's a sadist, like the way Eris was. She gets active personal pleasure from causing people mm -hmm. pain, which is not Daenerys. Like, and of course, that doesn't make a difference when you're the one being burnt alive. If Danny's burning you alive, you do not care that Danny's motivations are better than Cersei's. Obviously, why would you? That's something we brought up about Miriam Mazdur in the regular podcast, and we'll continue to explore with her character going forward. But it still matters in terms of how you evaluate Danny as a character. Like she's she's conflicted and and has real attachment to people. Like remember when Tommen died because of Cersei's actions, and Cersei looked at this corpse, going, "Well, isn't that ironic? It's like an O. Henry story. Guess I'm the queen now." <laughs> that was Cersei's response. Right. And then look at Danny's response to the deaths of Jorah and Missandei. They're not the same person. The tragedy is Danny can be led to an action that's like Cersei, even though she's different from Cersei in motive. That I think is the point Martin is going. Absolutely, for. that's 100 percent correct, and that's exactly what Martin's going for, and yourself as well. So. 
Thank you, Lady Randy, for the question. Transitioning over to, as we get towards the end of this episode, as we always do for our questions portion of this episode. And again, if you guys are interested in asking us questions for the last two episodes of Game of Thrones, you're welcome to sign up at any level at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOIF. We usually throw up these question posts on the Monday morning or Monday afternoon after the episode is aired. And you will ask us questions that we will attempt to answer. Again, we get probably (laughs) – we're always a little bit overwhelmed by the amount of questions we get. We got, I think, about 40 questions this time. So we're unable to answer every single person's questions here. But we really appreciate everybody's interest in the series and, of course, your support as well. So one of the most popular topics was on John and Ghost, something that we didn't have not exactly addressed here. And we got a few questions on that from various patrons. But we'll select Lady Kathy Stark, a poor fellow's question on it, where she asks, what the hell? John couldn't pe- John couldn't pet Ghost goodbye, or at least tell him to stay with Sansa. He lost most of an ear participating in that ridiculous vanguard charge, where he didn't even belong. D&D's writing stinks. Hashtag respect the direwolf. Hashtag pet ghost. <laughs> Hashtag pet ghost. Well, thank you, Lady Caffrey, for the question. And I agree, Ghost deserves all the pets and floof that any good dog does. Absolutely. But I, I don't entirely agree. This didn't feel, feel as egregious as killing off Summer and Shaggy Dog for basically no reason, because he didn't know what to do with them, which is what happened to those two direwolves. This this feels right to me, especially if it pays off as the way I think it's going to. Like, the whole point of a lot of this episode is John is going south, and there's a lot of reasons he shouldn't. And there's a lot of people telling him he shouldn't, because look what happened to previous Stark man. You can't quite trust Danny. It's all going to go wrong. Leaving Ghost, his heart, and connection to House Stark behind is part of that process. Part of how you know John's doing something for good reasons, but it's something at some level he shouldn't do, and is giving up too much of himself to do it. And I, I suspect by the end of the series... John's going to come back. Like, it felt really underlined when Tormund said to John, you belong with us too, going going back north, not just Ghost. That felt to me like, hmm, that's what John's going to do. After all the horror that seems to likely to go down with Danny and Cersei and King's Landing over the next couple episodes, I think John is going to refuse the Iron Throne. And I think he's I think he's going to come back north in, into either exile or just a, a quiet life unto himself. And I think he, I think he reunites with Ghost. I'll predict now he reunites with Ghost in his final scene in the show. Aww. That's my prediction. He comes back to his, his dog. And if I, I could be completely wrong about that, but if I'm right about that, I think that's that's well set up. And I think it makes sense within the context of this episode. It's, it's the equivalent of Sansa and Arya telling him he shouldn't go. It's just that's just another Stark thing he's leaving behind. The fact that he's leaving Ghost behind helps to symbolize that kind of Targaryenness, his desire to go south. It works that way, and kind of instead of them, instead of John op- openly saying, "Well, I'm a Targaryen now, I have to go south to King's Landing," he can say, "Ghost, I'm leaving you behind. Go north of the Wall. That's where exactly. You're that's where you belong. That's all you got to do." No, you you said it perfectly. That's what. That's why the direwolves work as an emblem of Stark identity. So when a character interacts with a direwolf, you can see him interacting with that identity. That's how it's always been with John and Ghost in the books. He says it like Ghost represents that I'm in this family but out of this family at the same time. And uh, yeah, I thought it was it was used very effectively in that regard. Uh, but uh, thank you again, Lady Kathy, for the question. Our next question comes from Sir Zombie Jesus, another <laughs> poor fellow, who asks, did Sansa fudge her words on purpose when swearing secrecy to John? I mean, not that it matters, because John knew what would happen once he opened his mouth. If so, I believe that's the only instance where we see a liar in front of the heart tree. Thoughts? Well, Justin, Sansa's your favorite <laughs> character. I thought you could take this one. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much for that. I appreciate that. Um... I, I, so I rewatched the scene in preparation for this question, and I didn't catch her fudging her words, both on the initial watch and on the rewatch it's, itself. I, I did you see anything that way? Am I missing some sort of context there? Didn't 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 she swear not to tell? I think anybody? she did. Like she said, "I do" or "I yes" or something like that. I I I, I, I don't know. I mean, 
Yeah, I don't think she fudged her words, but yeah, I, I didn't even consider her lying in front of the heart tree. Is that even part of show canon I, that you can't lie in front of a heart tree? I have tree? no idea. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't, I don't think they. I don't think they've mentioned it. Um, but yeah, I mean, of of course, Sansa told because she's she's not comfortable with with Danny being on the Iron Throne and sees, as we've said before, John on the Iron Throne is this compromise where the North will still be beholden to the Iron Throne, but now this person who sits on it will be of the North and will presumably do right by them in terms of of policy and personal treatment in the way that previous monarchs have not. So, I mean, it's, I guess, I guess I could be mildly annoyed with John not realizing that was going to happen, but I I think it makes perfect sense that, that Sansa would do what she did and would identify Tyrion as the person to tell because they have a previous relationship and because Tyrion is, is tight with Danny. Exactly. And it makes total sense to me as well. And that kind of takes us to to a similar ish question from ladies, Laura Z, one of our poor fellows who asks, what are your thoughts about John revealing the truth about his parentage to his sister cousins, knowing it might lead to civil war if the truth got out? I couldn't help but compare it to the way Ned handled the same secret, keeping the truth hidden at the cost of some damage in his personal relationships, namely to Catelyn, who only did one thing wrong in her entire life. Sorry, little book plug there. John seemed to value coming clean to Sansa and Arya more than avoiding any consequences that they might reveal later on. Am I being too generous to the writers if I surmise that John told the truth precisely because he had suffered the consequences of Ned hiding the same truth from him all his life? Also, uh, in parentheses, poor Quentin is the new Prince of Dorne confirmed. <laughs> I did that, love that little detail when they said there was a new Prince of Dorne. I sat right up in my chair and go, is his name Quentin? <laughs> Leave him alone, but is his name Quentin? It's Quentin. I don't want him in there, but is it? It's Quentin Cartel. That'll be his- ah, perfect. That'll be hysterical. But yeah, that, that's a good question. I like the idea that John told the truth because of, of what Ned did hiding the truth. I feel like you need a line of dialogue to establish that that's the case just in passing. It does dovetail nicely with what John said in season seven about we got to start telling the truth sometime. We can't keep double dealing each other forever. Um, so I'm fine with him confessing. I think that him honestly expecting them to keep it quiet after they just told him that they don't trust Danny and him giving them an option to have another monarch. I think that's a little silly. I think that there, there could have been something where John has another plan or they rhetorically trap him or, you know, some, something other than John asking for them to swear not to tell and honestly believing that they're going to do it. That feels that, that crosses the line again into John is dumb because he's good territory, <laughs> which is something I think the show just keeps doing with him. And I, I don't think is a smart move. Yeah, that is a little bit of an overused trope for John as a character. I do think it's interesting because in episode one, it is kind of made to the point where John is actually pretty upset that he finds out that Ned wasn't his actual father and had lied to him his entire life. It would seem that John is attempting to do differently from Ned by revealing this to Sansa and Arya. Again, it's not explicit in the text itself. It has to be subtext at some level. But I think the question that we're kind of going to come down to is like, was Ned ultimately right in concealing John's identity? Because we're already seeing this conflict erupting from John's identity coming out to the open. And now a dozen people know about it. And who knows? And now what is it? Tyrion says in the episode, now hundreds of people know it by the end of the week or the end of the day or whatever it's going to be. What is that actually going to do for peace in Westeros? Is it going to establish peace or is it going to foment war and conflict? And I think it's going to be the latter. Yeah, that's a great point for sure. Although I, I can't decide whether this is bad writing or just crafty setup when they say, he, you know, he can't say no. It doesn't really matter what he wants. And I'm going, yes, he can. <laughs> he can just bounce. Like you have Maester Eamon in the show, guys, who, who made this call. And you, in, the, in the backstory, you have Prince Duncan, who you alluded to with your song a couple episodes ago. Sure. Who specifically gave up the crown for his lady love. You have, yeah, it's, this, is, this is a known quantity and maybe it's different this time because I guess 
he'd be leaving Danny in charge and maybe he's getting doubtful about her, but I don't know if that's just kind of forced reluctant heroing or if that is, again, sneakily setting up that John is actually going to do just that yeah. and surprise everyone by openly refusing the throne. We'll see. Agreed with that there. So our final question for the episode comes from Sir Johnny G, a brand new poor fellow. Welcome, sir. And he asks, how do you feel about the episode having Cersei show she can adhere to the rules of parlay and not slaughtering her enemies when she had the chance while Sansa immediately breaks her word after swearing she wouldn't? Do you feel both are extremely out of character? Well, welcome, Sir Johnny Jean. I don't mean to disappoint you right off the bat, but I, I don't think those are terribly out of character. I mean, Cersei wasn't adhering to the rules of a parley. Cersei was playing with her prey. Cersei wanted Danny and Tyrion to be alive to watch Missandei die and know that, like, they're partially responsible for letting it happen. Yes. And watch that, like, fear and horror on their faces for the same reason she didn't immediately kill the Sand Snakes when she, when she took them captive or didn't immediately kill that Septa when, when she took her captive because this is who Cersei is. She likes to torture people. It's, it's fun for her. She likes playing with them like they're flies. This is kind of her thing. So, yeah, that's why she didn't immediately hit them with arrows, because that's not satisfying for her in, this, in the way it might be satisfying for other kind of more to-the-point villains. This is, this is part of her, her supervillainy, and Lena is always very good at that, you know? Like, remember her, remember her smile when, when the Sept blew up yeah. in Season 6? That's Cersei, and she can't smile that way if, if Tyrion and Danny don't realize what just happened. Yeah. Sansa, we've already covered a bit. I think that's slightly more forced, but for me, again, the forced element there is, is John telling them in, in good faith in the first place. Agreed there. And I, I do love from The Winds of Winter, the episode from season six, where it's not just that Cersei is like smirking at the set being blown up, but she also takes like a little swig of wine and then smirks a little bit more after that. So Lena Hetty is one of the better actors in the show, I would say, and I really appreciate her performance. There And I do think that what she's doing as the character of Cersei is performative art for the fact for the characters there and being like, okay, well, you know, this is what happens when you cross me. I'm going to cut the head off of someone who's a total innocent, who's not a warrior or anything like that. And now I'm going to force you into the decision of whether you're actually going to kill tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people or whether the Iron Throne is more important to you. What's, this, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? Like that is Cersei to a T. She's a sadist. She's a psychopath. And ultimately, Tyrion makes the wrong call, makes the wrong call in saying that Cersei is not a monster. She is a monster. Sorry, Tyrion. And, and she's a great comic book supervillain. She's like forcing the hero to make the sadistic choice like everyone always makes Spider-Man do. You get you got to pick between the saving the people and your lady love or whatever the great terrible choice is. That's the kind of role Cersei is in at this point. And while I don't think her and her resources are as intimidating as they should be to pull <laughs> off what they're pulling off... I think it's it's much more interesting in the books where Varys specifically kills off Kevin and Pycelle because he knows she'll bring everything down around her. Mm -hmm. I think that's much more fitting Cersei's story. I do like how she is setting herself up as a villain for Danny at this point. And yeah, Lena's obviously always been one of the best performers on the show. I hope in episode five she gets a much more resonant death scene than Rhaegel <laughs> did. Because she really deserves it as as an actress and a character, and I got to imagine that's they're going all in on that death scene. I absolutely hope so as well, because she deserves something that's quite epic and quite cinematic as well. So I think that about wraps us up for this episode, reviewing and analyze Game of Thrones season eight, episode four, The Last of the Starks. Thanks everyone for listening. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. If you haven't checked out our Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. 
where you can get exclusive episodes, early re- releases of our weekly chapter by chapter episodes, and our Game of Thrones episodes, show notes, and more. Mm-hmm. Please uh, follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. So join us next week for the bloodbath of episode five, where everyone is going to die. Didn't we say that for episode three? Uh, Whatever. And our regular chapter by chapter episode, this one on Tyrion 8, where we finally get to our first large scale battle, which makes a lot of sense for the tactical moves of both sides make a degree of, is that shade? Is that shade? It's slight shade there, but yeah, it's interesting to watch some weird echoes between what we're doing in the first book and what's going on in the show. Like we just did Danny Seven about like the Dothraki when they just kind of went out for good on the show, and now we're going to go into battle tactics when that's increasingly a problem on the show. So it's, <laughs> it's interesting to toggle back and forth, as you've said before, between season eight and book one. I think that's going to continue. But yeah, Tyrion Eight's going to be a lot of fun in itself because we get to the Battle of the Green Fork, and yeah, episode five. And if you thought people reacted. Divisively to this episode, just wait till we get next. Wait till we get to next. Oh week. boy, cannot wait. Actually, I can, but that's okay. So, thanks everyone for listening, and we will see you guys next week. <laughs>